invite your attention tonight to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be studying tonight from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Several years ago, a friend of mine told me about an article that he had read that had uh, a very uh, catchy title. The title was, Putting the Elders Back in Their Seats. And the article was all about the seats or the chairs that we have on the sides of the stage behind the podium or the pulpit. And it talked about the history of why they're there and that basically it was an indicator of authority and uh, that they were originally put there so that overseers could quite literally oversee the congregation as it worshipped. And so the application of the article obviously was that elders have authority and that the authority needs to be restored and respected and so on. I've tried for a long time to hunt down that article and I've not been able to find it. I've also tried for a long time to find some sort of information about who first put chairs on the on the uh, platform and why and I haven't been able to find that either so I really don't know if that history lesson is true or not but I can say that I completely agree with the premise and the premise being of course that uh, elders have authority and that the authority needs to be respected and particularly is an article and an idea like that Particularly, is it important in a culture like our own where many people don't prefer to recognize and respect authority, at least not like folks have in times past? But as I think about respecting authority, and now we turn our attention to Colossians, if there's any authority that needs to be restored as far as people uh, respecting and viewing and understanding that authority... It's the authority of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the book of Colossians. Because this is a book that is all about the authority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You could divide the book into basically three parts. Chapter 1, there's doctrine. Paul talks all about the teaching of the supremacy of Christ Jesus. The heart of it being verses 15 to 20. And he talks about all of the... Well, all of the things that make Jesus supreme, about how he is the image of the invisible God, about how by him and through him were all things created, he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he's the head of the body, the church, and in him fullness dwells, and God made peace through the blood of his cross. That's all about the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Then chapter 2 is defense. Chapter 2 is all about the importance of defending the doctrine of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and guarding against those like Colossians 2 verse number 8 who would try to spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. And then in the last two chapters, 3 and 4, you have duty, doctrine, defense, and duty. Jesus is supreme and he ought to occupy a supreme place in all of our lives. And if he is, here's what it will, here's what it will look, at, look like. I'll get it out in a minute. Here's how it will manifest itself in Colossians 3 and 4. By uh, placing our affections in heaven and by mortifying our members which are upon the earth and by putting on the new man and so on and so forth. 
So Christ is supreme, but the supremacy of Christ in our lives begins all the way back at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. And in these three verses, we find a prayer of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to say a a thing or two about that in just a moment, but what we're really interested in tonight is the, the reason or the content of the prayer. And it's these three Christian graces, this trio of Christian graces that we actually find coupled together in a number of passages throughout God's Word, that being faith, hope, and love. We read about them maybe most notably in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, and now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, they're all found in those five verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, which is a very uh, interesting companion to Colossians chapter 1, especially for comparison's sake, because in that verse, Paul will identify these these things and talk about how they work through one another, faith which works through love, and so on. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 to 12 is another context where we find these three Christian graces, if you will, all tied together. Together, And so we want to talk about them tonight and talk a little bit about what they mean and how we can apply them to our lives in a better fashion. But I want us to begin by noticing how this begins in verse 3 by Paul identifying this, this is a, a prayer context. Now, the faith, hope, and love are the reason for the prayer, not necessarily the content. Although I don't think it would be out of bounds to suppose that it would have made up some of the content but more about that in a moment. But I do want us to notice that there is something to be said in Colossians 1 verse 3 about the importance of praying for your brethren. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, praying always for you. Now this isn't the first time that we read something like this from the Apostle Paul. We read about it in Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. I give thanks to God the Father, Paul says, upon every remembrance of you, always remembering you all in my prayers because of your work and your labor in the gospel along with me. He was thankful for them. Romans chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about it as well, about how he constantly remembers the brethren in their prayers, in his prayers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, and over and over, or on and on rather we could go, where Paul talks about how he prayed for his brethren. But notice this point. It's important. Do you realize that Paul had never actually been to Colossae? He'd never actually met anybody from the church at Colossae except for one person that we read about twice in this book. His name is Epaphras. And Paul will talk about him in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and then again in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. So presumably, the only thing that Paul knows about the congregation in Colossae comes from this visit from Epaphras. And yet, having never been there, having never preached there, having never had anything directly to do with this congregation... Yet still, what does he say about them? In Colossians 1 verse 3, he says, I am always thinking of you and praying to God always for you. Stop for a moment and think about all of the congregations throughout the state and the country and even the world that maybe we've never visited, you've never visited, but you've heard of them. 
You know about the work that they do or maybe the struggles that they're engaged in. From time to time, we might announce one from the pulpit, maybe because there was a a natural disaster of some kind. And so they're struggling and they're asking for folks to pray for them, to help them and so on. Maybe we've never been there. We don't know anybody from that congregation. Couldn't point the building out to you if uh, if someone showed us a picture. And yet we know that they're there. We know that they're working. And so shouldn't we be praying for them? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul did, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. But now we get to the meat of our lesson, verse 4, verse 4 and 5. Here's the reason for the prayer. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which is coming to you as it is in all the world. Now let's think for just a few moments about these three things that he mentions, faith, hope, and love. And I want you to notice right from the outset that each one of these things is seen in action. How do I know that just from the context? What does he say in Colossians 1 verse 4? Since we heard of your faith and of your love and of your hope. Let me ask you a question. How could the Apostle Paul have heard of their faith and their love and their hope if it wasn't active? How could their reputation have preceded them and reached his ears through Epaphras or through anyone else if it wasn't the case that they were a working, active group of God's people whose faith and whose love and whose hope was on display? Again, we read about this. I mentioned 1 Thessalonians 1.3 a moment ago as an interesting comparative passage, but keep reading in the chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because Paul will later talk about how the word of the Lord has sounded forth from that congregation to all who are in Macedonia. He'll say, you are examples to everyone. You're examples to all people. And when we go places, we don't have to tell them about you because they've already heard about you. Well, how could a congregation, how could people hear about the work of a congregation if the congregation wasn't actually working? There are congregations all throughout the world that I don't know any, I've never been there, I've never met anyone from there so far as I know. I don't know what their building looks like, I don't know what their Bible class curriculum is, I don't know what songbooks they use, but I know about them because I hear about them. Maybe I see their work on the internet, or we get their bulletin, or we hear reports from one place or another. We haven't seen them, but we know that they're there, and they're working, and they're active, because the reports of their work travel and reach our ears. I wonder how often we think about our work as a congregation and how often we think about the fact that our work, our reputation as a congregation uh, goes forth and that our reputation precedes us, if you will, and that could be for good or for bad. It's simply up to uh, the uh, dedication that we have as a congregation to the will of God. Now, Look at the three things in particular. First of all, Paul mentions faith. The Bible talks about faith being an atmosphere or a location. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible talks about faith being that which keeps us rooted and grounded. Galatians 2 and verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's that which gives us direction, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And the Bible will talk about faith in a couple of different ways. There is, first of all, when the Bible talks about faith, it talks about it in the sense of a system of faith, if you will. It's talking about the gospel. Like in Acts 6 and verse number 7, where we read that a great number of priests was obedient to the faith. Or Acts 14 and verse 8, where we read about Elymas the sorcerer who sought to withstand uh, Paul and Silas and turn the proconsul away from the faith. Or Acts 13 and verse number 22 where Paul and his traveling companions were going about from congregation to congregation strengthening brethren in the faith. So the Bible will talk about faith in terms of a system, in terms of the gospel. But it also talks about faith in terms of confidence, in terms of trust, in terms of reliability. Like Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Or Romans, uh, excuse me, 1 John 5 and verse 4, now faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Or Romans 5 verse 1, therefore we're justified by faith. Faith as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse number 22. And here's an interesting one for uh, first. Interesting passage, 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 11, where we are to pursue or follow after or earnestly endeavor to acquire, among other things, faith. The Bible teaches us that faith is incredibly important. In fact, it's vital. Without faith, we can't see God, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Without faith, we can't be saved, John chapter 8 and verse 24. But faith, as the Bible defines it, is not just simply a mental assent. It's not just simply knowing facts, but it's rather believing them, trusting them, and then putting those facts into action. Remember James chapter 2? Will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James asks. He illustrates the point with Rahab and with Abraham and talks about how both of them were justified, not by faith only, but by faith and works. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 to 8, the passage we mentioned a moment ago. A congregation that's working, and so their reputation precedes them, and people know about them, and they are encouraged by them. And as it pertained to the church at Colossae, Paul says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We have heard of your faith. We have heard of your faithfulness, is the implication. And also... We've heard of, or we've, uh, we're aware of the fact that your faith has been put into action. And so we thank God for it. We pray always for you because we heard of this faith. Now, when we think about our prayers for the brethren, are we praying for the brethren because we have heard of their faith? Do we have the kind of faith, do I have the kind of faith, that when brethren think of me, they'll think about faith in action and pray to God because of that fact? Or when I think about faith, do I have a biblical faith? Do I have a strong faith? Do I have a faith that works and that is pleasing to God, one that would be worth hearing about? Think about the same thing as it pertains now to love. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have toward all the saints... 
Love, as you well know, is agape. It is that sacrificial love that puts the best interest of the object at the forefront. And it is seen first and most clearly from our Heavenly Father. John 3 and 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 5 and verse 2 is another passage where we are told to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself as a sacrifice for us. We are to imitate our heavenly father and to imitate our savior in the love that they show. But now notice this, look at Galatians 5 and verse 6. And listen to what Paul asks, uh, or what Paul says. He says, In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. It's interesting that not only will the Bible mention these three characteristics uh, together over and over again, but it will also talk about, on several occasions, about how one prompts or guides the other. In the case of Galatians 5, 6, when we're talking about a live working faith, we're talking about a live working faith that does so motivated by love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 3? Paul says, without love, what I say means nothing, what I have means nothing, and even what I do or give means nothing. Let all of your things be done in love, the Apostle Paul will say. Love in, in deed and in truth, 1 John 3 and verse 18. And who can forget John 13, 34 and 35? Jesus said, a new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Does Jesus mean to say that before he came into this world, God didn't expect anyone to love? No, that's not the case at all. But the point is that Jesus takes loving uh, one another and he exalts it to a plane never before seen. And he says that if we're going to imitate him in love, that that love is going to have to be selfless and it's going to have to be sacrificial. So back to Colossians chapter 1, we ask the same questions that we asked about faith. What about my love? Is my love sacrificial? Is my love seen in action is the love that I have for all the saints, Colossians 1 verse 4, the kind of love that is remarkable enough that if someone from my home congregation were to travel someone else and see someone like the Apostle Paul and talk about the congregation and the work, that it would cause Paul or anyone else to bow his knee and thank God on behalf of that kind of love that is on display by me as an individual or by us as a congregation. Look at the third. How about hope? We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We've heard of the love that you have to all the saints. And we also thank God for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now, we've talked about hope quite a bit over the last month or so in looking at the first half of 1 Peter chapter 1. And you remember that hope is confident expectation. It's, it's realistic expectation. It's not a wish or a dream. It's something that's based in reality. And you remember that Peter describes our hope as living in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 and following. But Peter also describes our hope as purifying in 1 John 3 and verse 3. And the reason why John says it's purifying is because he says anyone and everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he that is Jesus is pure. 
That means our hope motivates our holiness. We have a desire to be with the Lord. We have confident expectation. And so therefore, we purify ourselves in order to see it realized. But it's also able to strengthen us according to 1 John 2 and verse number 28. The Bible says that all of those who trust in God are blessed. Jeremiah 17 and verse number 7. And the Bible tells us that our hope is the anchor of our soul in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 19. So back to Colossians chapter 1 again. We're thanking God, Paul says, always. We're always thanking God, praying always for you. And the reason is because we've heard of your faith. Has, is my faith the kind of faith that folks might hear about? We're always thanking God and praying for you because we've heard of your love. Is my love the kind of love that folks might hear about and thank God for? We're always praying to God and we're thanking God because of the hope that is laid up in heaven for you, which you heard about in the word of the truth of the gospel. When we think about hope, when we think about this confident expectation that we have, do we believe in it strongly enough that like John would say in 1 John 3 and verse 3, our hope, our hope motivates our holiness? Do we believe in this hope strongly enough that like Paul does in Colossians chapter 1, we thank God on a regular basis for its reality? Now, remember that we began this lesson by talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. How the book of Colossians is all about exalting him as the supreme savior and how putting Christ in a supreme position in our lives begins with these three characteristics being put on display in our lives. But now notice this. In passages throughout God's word, these three things are all tied to Jesus Christ in one way or another. First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 21. What does the apostle Peter say? What does the apostle Peter say in that passage about faith and hope? He says, "Who by him that's Jesus do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope might be in God. Our faith and our hope are in God because of Jesus Christ." Hebrews, excuse me, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, we referenced it already. Jesus said, I've given you a new commandment. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Our example for love is Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3, our hope is living by the, what, remember, can you finish it? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All three of these things are interwoven with Christ Jesus. But they are also, look at Colossians 1 again, they are also tied to the gospel. We're not going to read, uh, study this section, but as Paul continues, you notice he talks about this hope that they heard of in the word of the truth of the gospel and how it is coming to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God and truth. The reason why they have faith and hope and love and the reason why Paul was able to hear about it is because they heard the gospel, they obeyed the gospel, they continued to apply the gospel throughout their lives. Notice verse number six, he says, it continues to bring forth fruit. 
Not a one-time thing, but an all-the-time thing. You obey the gospel for the first time, and from that point forward, the gospel continues to bear fruit within you. And when the gospel continues to bear fruit within us, then our faith and our love and our hope grow stronger. And then we have the kind of faith and the kind of love and the kind of hope that Paul is talking about in this passage, which is worthy of being heard of. So what about your faith and hope and love tonight? Is it what the Bible would uh, require of it? Is it what God would require of it? If someone were to travel to a congregation in a faraway land, perhaps uh, on a mission field somewhere on the other side of the world, and begin to talk about this congregation and begin to talk about individuals in the congregation, would they be able to say the same things that Paul has said about Colossae? And would they be able to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God after hearing about faith and hope and love that are present here within us and within the congregation of God's people here? If you're not a Christian this evening, the Lord's invitation is open. And uh, if you are a Christian, but maybe there are some things in your life that you'd like to address, some improvements that need to be made. Maybe you need to strengthen your faith and your hope and your love, and perhaps we can encourage you and help you in doing it. Whatever need you might have, we invite you to come and let it be known while we stand and sing.